Am I on? Yes, sounds like it. Good morning, everybody. Um, as Warren said, my name is uh, Sarah. I've been a member of this church for the past eight years, and for the past four months, I've actually been married to my amazing husband, Peter Dirk. <laughs> so crazy, it's my first time up here actually introducing myself with that little addition. <laughs> um, but guys, as you know, we've been going through uh, the book of Ruth. Last week we were in chapter three, so what we're going to do before we start anything else is we're going to do a quick recap, uh, recap on chapter three and a little bit before that so we know that at the beginning of the story, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth um, have both lost their husbands. They had immigrated to the land of Moab and now they've moved back to the promised land in the hope that they could make some sort of life there. They've heard that uh, God's favor is on his people, the Israelites, so they're hoping to get in on that, so they've moved back to the promised land. We also know that Boaz, in his kindness, has been helping them with food in various ways, but the severity of their poverty and vulnerability needs a lot more than that for a long-term future, for any hope for them. We also know that Ruth has met with Boaz and asked him to be her and Naomi's family redeemer, and he's agreed to help her, right? And we know that the family redeemer is the closest blood relative. So what Boaz has said to Ruth is there's actually somebody, a closer relative to him, that holds the rights to be the family redeemer. So he's going to speak to him, but regardless, at this point, Boaz has said, if this family redeemer doesn't do it, he will do it. So um, we've kind of reached some sort of resolution in the story where we know that Naomi and Ruth will be okay. That is settled. But the question that we have is, will it be Boaz who becomes the family redeemer or this mystery man? And we're kind of rooting for Boaz at this point, right? In any movie we would watch, that's the person that we'd be rooting for, the one that there's already a relationship there where we've seen interaction, but we don't know at this point. And that's where we're picking up this morning. But before we do that, I want to ask us a question. And that question is, What do we think the purpose of the Bible is? Why do we read the Bible? And maybe hold off on that slide (laughs) that says things on it. Um, (laughs) um, But I'd love to hear, just from a few people, what comes to mind? Why do we read the Bible? What's the purpose? To hear God's word. Nice. To get to know him, get to know his character, right? Sorry, Vex, what do you say? to wash ourselves, cleanse ourselves with the word. Anything else? For instruction, very good. Educate ourselves, nice. All good, very good answers. And the way that I kind of, when I was thinking about it, almost summarized it, which I feel like includes all the things that we're saying here, because there's so many reasons, right? But when we speak about the purpose of the Bible, I think there's one thing that God is doing very clearly from Old Testament to New Testament, and that is God reveals his redemptive plan for the world. There's no point where the story doesn't connect to each other. He's he's showing us that all along he had an intentional redeeming plan for the world. And within that, we learn about who God is. Who is this, this God that we serve? And also within that redemptive plan, we learn about who we are. So if we're gonna treat the Bible with its intended purpose in mind, then it's gonna require us not to read it like an article that was published in the last year. 
So over the last few weeks, we've been reminded of a tip in Bible reading, and there's probably one, if you like me, that comes to mind the most clearly because it rhymes. Anyone remember? <laughs> nice. Don't start with me in 2023. And Paul likened it to looking through the wrong end of a telescope uh, where things get distorted and blurry and you don't really know what's going on. Um, <clears throat> And that's really very clear to us in Read and Ruth that the context is critical for us to enjoy and be changed by what God is saying here. Because on the surface, everything is a little bit weird and unfamiliar. So this morning we're gonna do a deep dive into the story, looking through the right end of the telescope so that we can grasp the beauty of what God has intended to reveal to us, which is really exciting. So, just in, in line with that, I don't know how many of you did Afrikaans as a second language at school, but if you were as English as me, um, the comprehension section of any test or exam was just very rough. So, <laughs> I'd read the comprehension, and then I'd read the questions, and I would inevitably find myself in one of three situations. So, number one, I would understand the story, but nothing about any of the questions that they were asking. Number two, I would understand the questions, but have no idea what the main subject of the story was. And then number three, which was the most entertaining out of all, <clears throat> my anemic Afrikaans vocabulary would allow me to do a direct translation of the story, um, which resulted in some interesting answers to questions that really only usefulness was in to entertain the class. Um, yeah, so like an example of this would be, um, so the comprehension would start off with, or end, Yanni was die Wittbrücke van Klaas. And the whole story would be based on all these things that Yanni would do. So for the Zimbos in the room, or people who didn't do Afrikaans, that directly translated means Yanni was the white bread of the class. And the whole story would be based on this, right? So then the question in the comprehension would be, So why do you think that Yanni was the white bread of the class? So I would directly translate this as one would do, white bread, Afrikaans, they'd have some weird direct metaphors of what's going on. So my answer was, was Which means, because he had the most pale skin, so maybe they mean in like it's the whitest bread, which obviously is not what it means for all the people who actually understand. It actually means Yanni was the favorite of the class. That's what Wittbroki is. So you kind of, through directly translating into my context of what I think it means, I miss the entire meaning of the text. And if we do that with God's word, we don't get a bad mark on a test, right? But we rob ourselves of hearing the beauty of what he's actually trying to say to us. We kind of put ourselves in this position where um, we've completely misunderstood what the text was intended for. So this whole section is answering the question of who. Who will be the family redeemer? And if we ask in the question of what is God revealing of himself here, then there should be bells going off in our head when we hear the words family redeemer. Who is someone else in the Bible that is described as a redeemer? Jesus. 
Yes. So spoiler alert, let's keep in our minds that God is revealing something of what it means when Jesus is called our Redeemer. This scripture, like the rest of the Old Testament, is pointing to Jesus, giving us a glimpse of what's to come in Jesus. So let's give it a read. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, Come over and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten elders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi who came back from Moab? She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way, she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer said, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. Now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses today that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing around in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Okay, so we've got a myriad of terms here that we're not familiar with in this text, but I'm gonna pull out a few, otherwise we're all gonna be eating cold Brovos rolls at the picnic. So we're just gonna hone in on a few. First thing we need to notice about this text is that the unnamed uh, redeemer, uh, the unnamed man in this passage is the family redeemer. And we see that only this unnamed man can redeem it. There's some sort of rights or law where he has first dibs. It's not like any relative can just redeem the property, right? And we see, firstly, he's immediately keen. So that's quite interesting. Then Boaz tells us, if he redeems the land, he also has to marry Ruth and bear her a son, which will carry Ruth's dead husband's name, and the son will inherit the land that he's about to buy. Can you see why context is so important? Like this is not relatable to us. 
we don't really meet people where we ask, oh, how did you guys meet? And the guy's like, yeah, I wanted to buy this wine farm, um, but I could only buy it if I married her, and that's our love story. Like, we can't, we don't get that. That's why we need to really dig into the context, right? So then this guy, after hearing that, says he's not keen. And the reason he gives is because it will endanger his own estate. So we don't really know what that means exactly right now, but we're gonna find out a little bit later. But then Boaz steps up, just like he said he went in chapter three, if this guy wasn't keen. He says, he'll buy the land, he will marry Ruth, and he will give her a son so that he can inherit the land and continue their family name. So what we see here in the story is there are five layers to becoming a family redeemer. It involves five things. I tried to come up with an acronym, but it's just LMSIP, so <laughs> not very memorable. I don't really know what to do with that. If someone, yeah, if it's helpful to you, I'm really glad. But the first one is land, land or property. There's one layer that's going on there. Then there's a the marriage involved in becoming the family redeemer. There's also a promise of a son, and then there's an inheritance. And all of those elements require a redemption price to be paid for all of those things. So to make that happen, it comes at a cost, and that is the redemption price. So this was more helpful for me to remember it. These four, and then the, the payment on top of all of that. So the first element that we're gonna look at is the land. So we see that the family redeemer is required to buy the land. So, Property for us, owning property for us, is not the same as what it meant for Israelite people to own property. The land that they are in right now is called the promised land. So think of the promised land of being a country and Israelites as being the nation of that country. And this is a real place, right? Um, the promised land, basically, modern Israel and Palestine encompass most of what it was. So this land was promised to their ancestors hundreds of years ago, and finally, after many years of slavery, wandering through the wilderness, and war to win back this land, God brought them into the land that he had promised um, to give his people. And there were 12 tribes of Israelites, 11 of which the, the land was divided between, and then within each tribe, each family was given a piece of the promised land. So within your tribe, there was a piece of land given, and then it was divided between each family. So to the Israelite people, their share of property in the promised land was seen as their share in the promises of God. So you see how property meant exponentially more to them than how we would see property that we own. The Israelites understood their relationship with God and the inheritance of the promised land to be inherently connected. So the land we are speaking about here, in terms of it being redeemed, is Elimelech's family share of the property um, of the promised land. So this is incredibly important that they own it. Now God established many laws to ensure the protection of the poor and the vulnerable within his, if we think of Israel, as this, the promised land as the country and Israel as the nation, God established laws there to ensure the protection of the poor and the vulnerable. And this was to ensure that most of it was to ensure that they remained having their share of the promised land. 
So one of the ways this was done was through redemption rights. It's actually incredible. So the original owner of the property always had rights to buy that property back. One of the practices attached to their laws was the concept of a family redeemer. So if you went bankrupt and had to sell your land and ultimately sell yourself as a slave so that you had a place to live and work, then uh, to live and work, you could get your land back by the acting of a family redeemer. And a family redeemer is one of, so one of his brothers, near of kin unto him, could redeem him and his land by paying the price of redemption. This is in Leviticus 25 that we see these laws. So in this situation, Naomi holds the right to redeem the land as part of Elimelech's family, but there is no way that she could pay the redemption price. So she has the right, she's not a slave, but there's no way that she could pay um, for the property to be redeemed or actually use the land as a livelihood in their world. And that's where the redeemer comes in, in the returning of the land to their family. So if we look at land as the first layer, the family redeemer pays the redemption price of the land, giving these people, Naomi and Ruth, a physical place to rest in the promises of God. Then the second layer is marriage. So we see in this parish that one of the things the family redeemer is required to do is marry Ruth. This is also stipulated in Levitical law, that if the man who owned the property had died, the family redeemer also had to marry the man's widow. So he would pay the redemption price to buy them out of slavery, but he would also make the commitment in marriage to take the widow as his own, providing for everything that she would need in her life. Remember at this stage, even though Naomi and Ruth are not slaves, they are hopeless, completely hopeless without the aid of someone providing for and protecting them in the world that they live in. So the second element, marriage, we see that the role of the family redeemer is to become one with Ruth in marriage, committing to be hers and for hers to, her to be his for the rest of their life, so that Ruth and Naomi will be taken care of and protected. So that's the layer of marriage. The third layer is the promise of a son, which we also see in this passage. The duty of the kinsman redeemer was not only limited to the preservation of his current relatives and their property, they were also required to ensure that they got descendants in the case of death. So if someone died without having children, his brother was expected to marry the wife in order to preserve the name of the one who died through the firstborn child of the wife. That law is in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 to 6. Now this starts to make sense, the promise of a son, right? Because if keeping the land in your family is so important, then it doesn't help for Boaz to just take on Naomi and Ruth um, as dependents until they die. Because ultimately then when they die, their family's possession of the land will be over. They are kind of removed out of the promises of God the way that they would have seen it. So it's really important that a next generation is established for the legacy of Elimelech's line. So the family redeemer needs to provide a son to save Elimelech's family line from dying out so that they won't disappear from Israel in the promised land. Then the fourth element is the inheritance. 
the family redeemer is required to provide an inheritance. The son that Ruth would bear from Boaz, uh, oh, sorry, oh, yeah, the son that Ruth would bear from Boaz secured the next generation for the family line so that there would be someone to inherit the family property to continue the family line. So it's all connected back to the land and the continuation of it remaining in Elimelech's family. Now the last element that brings all of these layers together is the cost. What is the price of redemption that makes this land purchase, this marriage, the promise of the son and this inheritance possible? And that is the price of redemption. All of these responsibilities come at a price. Now that we know what the family redeemer's role is, how much did it cost? We see that this other family redeemer that had first rights to become Ruth and Naomi's redeemer um, went from a big yes when he thought it was just the land to a hell no. So why? And I think it's because this opportunity went from an investment opportunity to a huge risky sacrifice. So if it was just land, right, that this, this guy was just buying some land and then there was this widow that he would be taking care of, it was a bonus property that came with redemption rights. Another law that's in place, in, that God put in place within the Israelite nation is the year of Jubilee. Now, that year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. And what would happen is anyone who had lost their property, who had been um, uh, experienced bankruptcy, had to sell their property and sell um, themselves into slavery, all of it would be given back. It would be redistributed to the original owners. It's amazing how God protected his people, right? To, to keep them in his promises. So essentially, anyone who lost their property still held the redemption rights to that property. There was hope, even if it was only in 50 years, but that's where the family redeemer comes in. So if you bought a property, technically you were only getting a 50-year lease on the property. It would never become part of your family's inheritance. It was never yours forever. But with Naomi, being, with there being no descendants, this guy was buying the redemption rights and knowing that he would never have to give the property back. So there's a huge bonus here. This would be an expansion of his family's share in the promised land. So of course he says, all right, I'll redeem it. But then he hears that's not all. The land comes with two widows. One of them he must marry. Not only that, he also needs to give her a son that will carry her dead husband's name and that land that he paid for needs to be given to that son as an inheritance from Elimelech's family line. We also need to remember that in the beginning of the story, we saw that the promised land, um, Israel was experiencing famine. And then God started blessing them, right? So that's why Naomi and Ruth came back. But think about how risk averse that makes people. When there's scarcity in the land, we've, we have something very close like COVID that shows us that kind of like anything can happen. You're not quite sure. So if you've been holding onto your land with white knuckles and there hasn't been, there's been famine, you're not going to just jump at the opportunity to sacrifice stuff out of abundance here. 
This was a huge, huge deal with a major sacrifice, a major financial sacrifice. And that's why now we can understand when he says, I can't do it because it's going to endanger my own estate. My estate's going to have to finance an entire ordeal here. All right. So I know this is a lot of context that we're not familiar with. So what we're going to do is transport these characters into the 21st century, and we're going to drop them in Stellenbosch. Because when you pile this much unfamiliar law and cultural practice into one section of scripture, we can easily miss the gravity and the beauty of what God is trying to reveal to us. So I'm going to ask for some volunteers, but I'm not really going to give you a choice into whether you come up because time, you know. So Christian, <laughs> please come up. <laughs> Hilton, Lindsay, Jack, Sharon, and Stefan. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so Christian, if you can come stand over here. Christian is going to be our unnamed redeemer. So we're going to call you Mr. John Doe, okay? Or Mr. Doe for short. Then we're going to have Mr. Boaz, which is going to be Hilton. So Hilton, surprised role, well done. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Hilton is now Mr. Boaz, okay? You got, yeah, come over here, my friend. Yes, so that's happened. All right. Then we've got, um, uh, who have we got? Ruth, all right. And then we've got Malon, which was Ruth's husband. Then we've got, <laughs> I did this because I know they're just friends. <laughs> Okay, and then we've got Sharon and Stefan, who is Naomi and Elimelech. All right. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so you guys can stand a little bit more together. All right. Now, Mr. Doe, he is, oh, the first thing that happens is, um, sorry. <laughs> Let me just get one more thing. <clears throat> For the context of our story, this is little Obed. You'll see why we need him here already. Um, very cute. I borrowed the doll from Annabeth, and Kate just <laughs> told me, what do you think Auntie Sarah needs the doll um, for um, in the preach? Do you, um, do you think she's going to sacrifice it? <laughs> it's like somebody who knows their Bible stories. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we've got the family there. Now... Something terrible happens, <clears throat> and Elimelech dies, and so does Malon. So you guys can take a seat. So now it's just Ruth and Naomi. <clears throat> so this family over here owns Alluvia Wine Estate, but now their husbands are gone, and they're not very into the wine industry. So they're just there. It's very sad. Then we've got Mr. Doe who is an eighth-generation owner of Takara Wine Estate. COVID has happened. <laughs> <There's> <clears throat> uh, they've lost a huge amount of capital due to the alcohol bans, but he's managed to hold onto the farm, which is amazing, okay? But now things are picking up again, and he's, he'd really like to expand Takara. But all the land around him that he could expand to is only available on lease. He can't actually buy it, which means that any infrastructure that he needs to build 
onto these properties and vineyards that he would need to plant, they, they wouldn't ever be his. They would inevitably be lost once the lease was over because he doesn't actually own them. So what happens is Mr. Boaz, who is the owner of Dalekhraf Wine Estate, um, he was very close actually with um, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, um, and was the executor of their will, of his will. So Mr. Boaz is the owner um, of this wine estate, and he calls Mr. Doe. They know each other, right? And he says, <laughs> do you remember, um, uh, Mr. Doe, do you remember, Elimelech, that you had that agreement of right of first offer on the property, the Alluvia wine farm? Now, right of first offer, I'm not really into, I don't know any of the laws really, but I think that's something that exists today, right? Where right of first offer is you the first person who can buy before anyone else can buy. So we've got that there. Mr. Doe has right of first offer on this Alluvia wine farm that Elimelech owned. Um, and he says, um, Elimelech passed away yesterday. This is what Mr. Boas says. And I'm wanting to find out if you are still interested in buying the property, Mr. Doe. So Mr. Doe is so excited. <laughs> this is exactly the opportunity that he's been dreaming of. So they set up a meeting at the lawyer's office, which is actually the equivalent of the town gate um, in the story, to discuss the details. So Mr. Boas starts to read out the terms and conditions of the sale of Elimelech's farm, this alluvia wine estate, very exciting. So condition one is that if Mr. Doe decides to buy the estate, he must take on Elimelech's widow as a dependent for the rest of her life. She also gets to stay in the main house of Eluvia for the rest of her house. And Mr. Doe, you would need to be responsible for all her needs, all her nursing needs as she gets older. There's absolutely no money left in the estate to support his family. So if you buy the property, the condition is that Naomi becomes your responsibility. So with the land, you're not marrying her, don't even stress, okay? <laughs> 21st century people. Okay, and then condition two is if you want to buy the estate, Mr. Doe, you must also take on Elimelech's daughter-in-law, Ruth, as a dependent. She's unable to work, so for the rest of her life, you would be responsible for all her living expenses, whatever they might be. So Ruth, you can join him up there. Then, <clears throat> so you get in this land, but you get in a lot of expenses with it, as you can see. Condition three, obviously more than expenses, but you know what I mean. And this is where, okay, this is where we really have to improvise on critical parts of the story to bring them into the 21st century. Um, but you'll get the weight of the commitment regardless. So Ruth already has a son because in our world, it would be very weird for you to just start marrying people to produce sons for them. So she already has a little boy and his name is Obed, and he's Elimelech's grandson. And in the terms of sale, Elimelech has stipulated that whoever buys the property must also take on the responsibility of raising Obed. So all his financial needs will be the responsibility of the buyer. All his living expenses, his schooling needs, university, all of that, that is now your responsibility, okay? The fourth and final term, is that if Mr. Doe decides to buy Alluvia Wine Farm, 
he needs to give it to Obed free of charge once he's old enough as his inheritance. So essentially, the opportunity and responsibility represented here is actually to take a huge financial sacrifice with no personal gain and no return on investment. The sacrifice is entirely for the benefit of this other family. There is no personal payoff. So when Mr. Doe says he can't redeem it because it will endanger his own estate, it makes sense, right? To Kara Wine Estate, all his money and resources is going to have to finance everything that's necessary for the continuation of this family. And this is the point where we realize that this is not just a small act of kindness from Boaz's end. This is an extremely costly sacrifice that he doesn't stand to gain from. And in this situation, even the child would actually, not in this situation, sorry, in the Bible, <laughs> even the child that is genetically his would not be considered his own. So there's no personal gain, but what does Boaz do? He says, all of that he will take on. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> okay. Give them another hand. Thank you so much, guys. You can go. <laughs> that was brilliant. You guys are <laughs> five-star performance. So you get the weight of it now, right? There's major gravity of what's being taken on here. This is a huge sacrifice. This is a big deal. So if we go back to our question at the beginning of the purpose of reading the Bible, we need to seek out what God is revealing of himself here and his redemptive plan. At first glance, we see Boaz's incredible, sacrificial, redeeming kindness that saved Naomi and Ruth from complete hopelessness and vulnerability. But even a man like Boaz, devoted to God in a time of religious and moral degeneracy, putting himself on the line for the rescuing of another family, even he isn't enough to save the world. We needed far more than a Boaz to rescue us from our hopelessness. I think something that we really see about God's heart here is how he is an invested God. This is a little family that's got financial struggles, that is facing death, that is facing huge vulnerability, they are in danger, and God is weaving intricate details together because he is so invested. That's his character. It's not this family. He's like that with everyone. He is so invested in our lives. So we know, right? Being the redeemer involves LM sip. What was it again? <laughs> Something like that. Involves land. Marriage, the promise of a son, and an inheritance, and then a price to pay for this redemption. Boaz pays the redemption price of the land, giving Naomi and Ruth a physical place to rest in the promises of God for the rest of their life. But Jesus, our Redeemer, pays the redemption price necessary to give us a physical place to rest in the promises of God eternally, in our true home, heaven. Boaz becomes one in marriage with Ruth, devoting himself to her for the rest of their lives. Jesus becomes one in marriage with us. 
he as the groom and us as his church, as his bride, as the church, devoting himself to us forever. Boaz provides a son to save Elimelech's family line from death, but Jesus is the son that God sent to save the world from death for eternity. Boaz provides an inheritance of the land for Ruth's son, but Jesus provides us with an inheritance of God's eternal and all-encompassing love, grace, and mercy. Boaz's payment of redemption was enough to save one family for their earthly lives, but Jesus's payment of redemption, Jesus's payment of redemption was enough to save the entire world from sin and death forever and ever. Boaz, Boaz paid the redemption price with money, but all the money in the world couldn't save us. Jesus paid our redemption price with his life, his body, and his blood. When Jesus paid our redemption price, the wages of sin and death, he did it in totality. It wasn't only for people in the platinum level of morality according to the world. He paid the price for past, present, and future sin so that those who give their life to him always, always have hope and a future. No matter how bad we think our sin is or our situation is, he has paid the price for it. In 1 Peter 17 verse 20, we see him say, for you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Jesus' sacrifice for us can't be corrupted or run out. It's not vulnerable to bankruptcy, to vulnerability, like the family redeemers was. Because if we think about it, if Boaz loses everything, so do Ruth and Naomi. It's not secure, right? But Jesus' sacrifice is different. It's impenetrable. I really believe that what God is wanting to speak into our hearts this morning is the totality of his redeeming grace and love. Boaz's life was a foreshadow of what Jesus was coming to do. But our life is a reflection of what Jesus has already done. More than anything, I believe that Jesus wants us to live a life in awe of the totality of his redemption of us. One of the polar opposite things about Peter and I um, is our relationship with chocolate. <laughs> when someone gifts him some, he uh, doesn't open it and start eating it. More often than not, it actually expires before he has any in a drawer or somewhere. And I, on the other hand, unwrap that thing in a matter of minutes to start enjoying its finger-licking goodness. Um, and this might not be the best way to approach chocolate, right? But it is 100% the way that God desires for us to embrace the fact that he has redeemed every single aspect of you and your life. I think we are so quick to compartmentalize our lives into the stuff that Jesus handles, that we accept his redeeming love, his redeeming grace over, and then we have the stuff that we think we handle alone. Often we do a kind of tag team approach. We think through our willpower and strength, we should kind of meet Jesus halfway. We, we need to sort out this thing and then we'll be suitable to come before God. We often do it with spiritual stuff. 
I think, okay, I need to be disciplined in spending time with God and then I can speak to him. No, we can ask him to help us desire to spend time with him, right? Oh, I need to have faith before I feel like it's okay for me to pray to him. No, you can come before him with no faith, asking him to give you faith for whatever it is. He didn't pay the price for the salvation of your total depravity so that you would only access some of it. He wants us to access it all. He wants us to take the whole, take hold of all he has done so that we are always filled with hope, so that we know that nothing is too big or too insignificant for him. I want you to take a moment. You can close your eyes if you like. And just examine your heart before God. So think of a situation or sin in your life that you have subconsciously decided falls into the, the handle yourself department. Something you, you just don't think God is interested in. Or maybe it's even in the bottom of the pile department something you yourself don't even think about. You just bury it because it's actually too much, too much for you, too much for God. It could be a situation that is so hopeless that you just, you just don't see a way out of. Maybe it's just the way that you feel, that you can't stop feeling. Maybe it's a hard relationship Maybe a sin you've tried so hard to beat. Or maybe it's something you desperately long for in your life, that you just thought that God couldn't possibly care about this. Everything that you've just thought of has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made a way for you to experience freedom in and from those things. So you can open your eyes. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And communion is actually the symbolic reminder of our redemption price. So for us to be free from a life of hopelessness, Jesus sacrificed his life. His death was the only thing that could actually cover every aspect, every sin, all the brokenness in our life. For us to be free from that hopelessness, Jesus sacrificed his life. As we take communion, I just want to encourage you to lay down those things that you've knowingly or unknowingly excluded from Jesus' redeeming love and grace. Ask him to take the weight of those burdens. And this doesn't mean that all of our complex stuff goes away, right? But it does mean that the one that can actually bring change is the one that's in control. You don't have to take on a weight that you can't actually bear. Let's pray. Jesus, our Redeemer, thank you that you paid the price necessary for us to be one with you, for us to be receivers of the totality of your grace, for us to have a place in the perfect world we will one day live in, in heaven. Lord Jesus, please won't you help us to surrender our biggest, deepest sins and desires to you. Thank you for making that process possible. 
that we can come unashamed, that we can come without any doubt that you have the power and the strength to meet us there because you have already redeemed us. Amen.